Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Paul Stout. Paul is the founder of KP Asset Management. KP Asset Management specializes specializes in mobile home parks and self-storage facilities across Indiana, Illinois, and Ohio. Paul's current portfolio manages around 500 units, uh, and he syndicates and manages most of his portfolio in-house. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate you asking me to be on. Definitely. Can you start out by telling us your story and and how you got into manufactured housing? Sure. Um, Longtime investor, mostly in uh, in you know stock market. Uh, Started investing pretty young. In fact, uh, you know, had my when I was a teenager, not even old enough to open up my own account. My dad took me to his uh, office building downtown and introduced me to a broker that worked there, and uh, they you know helped me set up an account to start trading. I was probably 16 or 17 years old, because I know I couldn't open it myself. Um, so did a lot in uh, in the stock market and um, always wanted to get into real estate, just never really put forth the effort to do it. Um, probably uh, about uh, seven or eight years ago, started getting really serious about wanting to get into real estate, started to um, earmark some, some of the money that I had in the market uh, that was, uh, you know... Um, enough that I could start purchasing some multifamily. So I pretty much started out like everyone else, kind of just educating myself, looking at single family, and then realized that probably wasn't for me looking at uh, multifamily. And I kind of stumbled across mobile home parks and and I actually uh, dismissed it at first, but it kept sticking in the back of my mind, some of the things that I learned about it, which was the uh, ease of operation. And though it's not easy to operate, uh, it, it's typically easier than the multifamily. So I started looking into it, uh, started educating myself on it. There wasn't much to be found as far as education back then. There was a little bit, but uh, I bought my first property on my own and decided that I was going to self-manage it. And when I say self-manage it, I mean, without even a an on-site manager, take all the calls and basically learn the the ins and outs of the business as much as possible over the first couple of years so that by the time I decided to start uh, speaking with investors about coming on board and purchasing more properties, at least I had a good background in managing the property, had a good feel for what was going on. And when I started to hire uh, people to take over the day-to-day management of the parks, I at least knew what they would be getting into. And, and uh, you know, in, instead of them being able to, I guess, pull things over on me. I kind of, since I'd been there before, I pretty much knew what was going on and what needed to happen. So uh, after that, (coughs) excuse me, after that, uh, purchased a second property with an investor. um, And, uh, you know, that that went along uh, for about eight or nine months, um, found some other properties, Purchased, I believe, four more properties in uh, in the course of a year. Uh, basically, we're up to eight properties now. I've been doing it uh, almost five years, 
and uh, about 500, like you said, about 500 units. And uh, overall, it's going really well. We've got everything from properties that we purchased that just needed a little bit of, uh, um, uh, you know, provision of management and um, uh, all the way to uh, pretty good sized turnarounds. That's, that's fantastic. Man. All of that, excuse me, all of that in five years. That's, that's pretty awesome, man. Yeah. Um, you know, for our investors that are the passive investors, the LPs, you know, what would you say are the most important things that they need to look out for when investing into the mobile home park asset class? For me, number one is the, is the market because it doesn't really matter what else you have. In my opinion, I think that the market really drives the asset to be successful or unsuccessful. You can certainly purchase a, a poor asset in a great market, but I would prefer that to a good, seemingly good asset in a poor market. And the reason is, is that if you purchase a, an asset that isn't performing quite, a, quite up to uh, uh, what it should be, if you have a good market, you can always get it there. Whereas if you have a property that is in a, a not so good market, uh, it may be going well today, but things can change in poor markets. And, and I define a poor market as somewhere that has, uh, you know, perhaps there's limited employment or they, they, they rely too heavily on a single employer, which, uh, as you know, can, that can change dramatic, you know, very quickly and it can have a dramatic effect on your property. And as far as purchasing properties that are maybe not looking so great at the time, if you have a good market, um, it's kind of like the old, you know, if they build it, if you build it, they will come. So if you have a good product to sell in a good market, you're going to be able to sell it. And, and, it, and it just becomes so much easier to do that. Uh, I would say of all of our properties, they're all in excellent markets. One of them is in an okay market. And really that one has been the one that's been the most amount of work. Um, and and I really moving forward, I, I think that I'm I'm going to stick with the really good markets. I mean, I I I like to see uh, at least two hundred fifty thousand. I know a lot of people that are chasing markets around a hundred thousand, but even those, um, you know, they could be good if you know the the micro area. Um, but if you have a a market that's on the smaller side, you really need to take a look at it. Is that the only market in the area within say driving distance to jobs, like uh, maybe 30 to 50 minutes, uh, or is there another 100,000, 200,000? Because that can make a difference too. People will travel to, for good jobs, but um, I, I typically like to look at larger areas. Most of our portfolio now is in uh, areas where there are you know, millions of people. So, and and th those are just so much simpler. Uh, there's, there's, there's so much better as far as finding folks and being able to uh, infill and and occupy the homes that we have. Uh, the other thing that that you know you have to look at, of course, is is the the demographics of that market, even on a micro scale. Because when you get into the larger metropolitan areas, such as uh, Chicago or Indianapolis, or I would imagine it to be true of of most of the large metropolitan areas, you can have certain small sections that aren't great. You know, as far as crime. Uh, or, or jobs, or you may have extremely low housing prices, and those can be challenging for, for uh, you know, operating a property effectively as well. And then, of course, there's value. So as you know, today, uh, it's very difficult to find value in this space. And I don't mean value by the asking price uh, necessarily. It could be, but uh, it could also be 
seemingly overpriced by today's numbers property that you know is undervalued uh, simply because of the fact that they have uh, uh, the, the rents are too low or something of that nature. So if you have a great area and you've got good value on your buy, then you should do pretty well. Yeah. Would you mind sharing a little bit about what research you do, you know, in the, in regards to the market, like what, sure. you know, for, for LPs, you know, what I say is you should spend at least five to 10 minutes learning about, you know, the top employers and, you know, maybe you could share a little bit about what you do when researching a market outside of just looking at population numbers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So some of the big ones are, of course, population numbers. Then you're also looking for what types of jobs, like you said, what types of jobs do these folks have? Um, are there, is the, is the employment diverse? Uh, are these, uh, even if it's diversified, are these employers, um, you know, are they, are they employers that are cyclical or not? Are they employers that are, you know, heavily into one segment or not? Because all those things can be a bit of a red flag. So if you, if you have diversity in both size uh, and, and, you know, say segment, um, whether it's manufacturing or education, medical, it's, it's best to have a very diverse uh, employment and to really understand who are the top maybe 10 or 20 employers, like you said, just taking some time to look at that and doing a little bit of background checking to see, um, you know, if, if, if some of these employers are employing mostly, uh, you know, physicists and engineers, that's probably not the folks that are going to be living in your, you know, in your, in your property, if you're in manufactured housing, unless it's a higher end one. <clears throat> so you have to be careful too, not to look at the employers and say, oh, look, there's 10 great employers. They're not going anywhere, but most of the people living in your property aren't actually working for them. So you're looking for employers that, you know, like Amazon and Walmart and, you know, places that employ people in the, um, you know, um, just your everyday service, Joe without a college industry. education, yeah. service industries, absolutely, whether it be fast food, things like that. So you're looking for that. Uh, you're also looking for uh, the school systems because it really doesn't matter how much money folks make or how much they can afford in housing. Uh, if, if you're going to be owning a property that is a, a family-oriented property and it's not, say, um, a lifestyle choice or some sort of um, you know, 55 and older community, everyone wants their children to have good schools. So I like to take a look, a look at the school systems to see how the school systems, um, you know, really perform compared with surrounding areas, because if they don't perform as well, you'll probably lose a lot of prospects to the surrounding areas. Uh, we then look at um, things like, you know, your average travel times for work, you know, so it's nice to have places that are close. Uh, it's nice to have places that are that are looking at these areas to come in, uh, into and to move their businesses to, not the other way around, you know. So if there's a lot of businesses, uh, and we struggle with this in Illinois sometimes, where, you know, whatever is going on in that state with taxes or whatever else it might be, you may have some great employers, but are these employers looking to leave? That can be dangerous. Um, we we then look at the the pricing of comparable housing, and when I say comparable housing, I typically, you know, we're looking at two to three bedroom apartments and two to three bedroom homes on the lower end of the scale. If you can get a three bedroom apartment for $600 a month, 
and you can purchase a two or three bedroom home for $65,000, it might be a little bit hard to move a manufactured home. You know, so those are some of the things we definitely look at. And those are some of the things that will tell us whether or not the area is uh, as good as we think it might be initially. Um, and we always visit the area too. You know, we just drive around, drive around and, and see what, see what people are doing. Is, is this a place that people, uh, you know, is it, is it bustling? Are, are people, uh, people there and they're, they're going to stores, they're visiting the shops They're you know, there's, there's lots of people. Um, and then we kind of go around the area where the property might be located. And we try to see if there are some really, uh, you know, rundown, uh, high crime areas. Uh, so we like to try and stay away from that as much as possible. But uh, again, in some of the larger metros, one or two blocks, quarter mile, half mile can make a huge difference. And it's just the way it is. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that the property won't perform well if it's close to a blighted area. But if it's an area that we know really well, we'll be much more comfortable with it. So that's another thing is try to, we try to invest in areas that we actually know uh, that are that are somewhat near home that we've visited that we understand and that we spent some time in that's excellent and and where are you based out of paul i'm in the chicago metro so i'm in northwest indiana and uh we we do a lot of in the chicago area and also in the um the Indianapolis area and the Springfield, Illinois area, because, you know, we, we, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in all three of those areas. I was born and raised in the Chicago area, spent a lot of time in Indianapolis, spent a lot of time in Springfield. And so, you know, we're real comfortable with those areas. So we focus on those. Um, and then uh, the, the area we're in, in, in Ohio is really great because it's, it's, it's got everything we look for. Um, in fact, there's, there's quite a few good, good metros that are really close. It's the Akron and Canton area which is also very close to, uh, I believe it's the Cleveland Metro. So basically lots of jobs, good paying jobs, steady jobs is what, is what drives these, uh, these metros to just be really good for us because we're, we're, we're never short of, of finding folks that uh, are able to afford the product that we're, that we're selling and who are looking because all of these areas also have shortages. You know, so there's there's definitely a, a shortage of, of affordable housing in all of these areas. That's that too is key because if you're seeing houses that are on average two hundred and some thousand dollars, uh, that typically indicates that you've got a pretty good need for affordable housing, especially if you're looking at the vacancy rates in the area and they're you know ten percent or lower. That usually indicates a, a need for for housing that's affordable. Definitely, definitely, and I wanted to mention a couple of the websites you know, that in passive investors, you know, cause I, a lot of them that I've spoken with won't actually go drive to every park that they're going to passively invest in. Right. Sure. Uh, but they could take 10 minutes or so and check out bestplaces.net. You know, mm -hmm. that's a, uh, that's a good website to kind of learn about a certain area, certain Metro, um, in regards to schools, you know, greatschools.org is a great mm -hmm. website to use for that. And then city-data.com is another site that has a lot of good data on it about a certain area. So um, really interesting. One, one, th one thing that I saw recently um, on LinkedIn is a map of the states and the population inflow mm -hmm. and outflow. And I saw the state of, Indi or the state of Indiana, mm -hmm. uh, the population is increasing. Right. Uh, and then opposite to that, Illinois is <laughs> right. decreasing uh, drastically. So that's have, the fact you got any comments on that? You know, what would you say, you know, have you noticed it in your business? Uh, 
Yeah, definitely. It's, it's definitely something that I've noticed. And in fact, you know, I stated that we, you know, uh, we, we do invest in Illinois. We're very selective. Um, Illinois is for better, for worse, or I guess they're, they're, they're on a path where they're sort of at a point now where they've, they've just gotten out of control with spending and therefore their taxes have continually gone up and up and up. And I, I spent most of my life in Illinois. Uh, so I was one of those people that moved out of Illinois to Indiana. And, you know, when they raise taxes uh, and people begin to get to a point where they can't afford it, they look for somewhere that is more reasonable. And the, if they can just jump over the border to Indiana or Iowa, that's what they're going to do. And that's what they have been doing. Um, it seems to me that that has increased dramatically in the last three years. And here with this, um, with COVID, um, it, it seems to have even increased more so. Uh, in the area that I live, uh, Northwest Indiana here, um, the amount of building, uh, the amount of new construction is just unbelievable. I mean, every time you open a paper, you turn around, there are, there's another developer adding thousands of homes and they're selling so quickly. I'm actually a real estate broker as well. And um, I deal mostly with investment properties, but I do for certain people help them with their you know, single family homes. And it's, it's extremely difficult to buy anything around here right now. Um, something goes on the market. If someone calls you and says, Hey, I'd like to go look at this this weekend and say it's Thursday, you know, you basically just tell them, don't bother. It'll be gone by the weekend. And it normally is. So people certainly are moving out of Illinois. That said, um, I don't believe that there is a long-term um, danger of investing in the Chicagoland area of Illinois and some of the larger metros as well, because Cook County is really one of the more difficult areas. Okay. So there's plenty to invest in outside of those areas. And there's plenty to invest in inside of Cook County and many of the big players like Zeman and, you know, ELS, they, they still, uh, they still do invest in those areas and they're doing just fine. And I think they'll continue to do just fine. Um, the, the areas that are probably going to get hurt more are some of the outlier areas where, um, basically as people leave the suburbs, uh, obviously the prices of the homes are going to go down because you're going to have this maintained supply, if not increased supply, and you're going to have less people wanting to buy those. So a lot of people who may have had to live in a, a way off park in like Kankakee, Illinois, or something like that, but they work near the city, as the prices come down closer to the city, they'll probably move. So in my opinion, that could be a danger. But I think overall, uh, I don't know that it's going to affect the mobile home parks and the manufactured housing near as much as it is uh, single family housing. If I were investing in single family housing in Cook County right now, I might be a little concerned. But as far as the manufactured housing, you know, we're talking about people that are on the affordable housing spectrum here with as far as, far as they're purchasing and they're looking for a good product for a good price. So as long as these properties um, do not price themselves out of the market. I think they can still continue to to thrive over there. Uh, I do know folks that invest, you know, that have parks in in Illinois, and and they're still doing fine. And um, you know, they're they're a little concerned. And I've heard brokers talking about, you know, if you own anything in Illinois, you probably want to sell it right now. And I understand that there's, you know, not a lot of people super interested in Illinois, but 
the same time, you know, well, like Warren Buffett said, when other people are fearful, you should be greedy. And when they're greedy, you should be fearful. So if people are fearful and not wanting to purchase parks in Illinois, that actually may uh, bring about some really good value over there. So um, yeah, I'm not true. currently, you know, I'm not that's currently true. looking to buy a bunch of parks in Illinois that, you know, <laughs> just to, just to be clear on that. But, um, you know, cause I, I really like Indiana really concentrating on Indiana, uh, in the Chicago Metro, of course, because that's where all the people are going, all the people that are leaving Illinois, they're, they're coming over here. Um, and then I, I always really liked Indianapolis done really well there. So I guess for what it's worth, that's my opinion on Illinois, but, uh, as far as Indiana goes, you know, Indiana is a great, a great state. Um, you know, if you get outside of Cook County, Illinois is more landlord friendly than most people believe. Uh, Cook County is extremely, extremely tenant friendly. Um, I have to Indiana. disagree with you there, Paul. I, I have a couple <laughs> parks myself in Illinois and every single one of them, when I have to evict somebody, it's just a, a, a really, it's, it's, it's double the work in any other state. So no kidding. I, wow. It really is. And it takes longer. And especially right now with the, the eviction moratorium going on. And uh, I just feel bad. I'll give you for, that one. You know, all those restaurants and other businesses that are, are you know, being, being shut down basically yeah. by the state. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable, but, uh, well, I think yeah. that, you know, Indiana, my, on the other hand, Indiana, Indiana a, a lot of is simple with, yep. for sure. Indiana is simple. They're, they're pro business. You know, they want people to come sure. and, and do business there and that's they try to make that's it why easy. they're growing. That's why they're growing. That's right. So, Absolutely. Tell me, tell me this, Paul, what has been the toughest hurdle for you in the business thus far? I think you said you have eight properties. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I would what say the toughest, the toughest, the toughest yeah. hurdle that I've, that I've come across so far is early on um, with, you know, partnering up with, uh, with people is uh, basically not spelling everything out to the detail that we should have spelled things out. Uh, for instance, you know, we have a property uh, in central Indiana and the, the agreement was that, that you know, the funding was going to come from a certain place and that that place with the investors basically dried up and so there was no backup plan for that so now we're kind of we're looking at other ways to get that property funded because the property is a turnaround i wouldn't call it a, a super heavy turnaround but it's a medium turnaround and so you know you and i discussed that property in fact that property has been the biggest challenge in that we're trying to find other uh, avenues of funding and they exist However, they're just not as ideal as what we were hoping in the first place. So basically, I guess if I were to say the one thing that has been the biggest challenge is that I've learned the most from as well is when, when I set up, uh, when I syndicate a property and I go to the investors and we discuss, you know, how is this going to be funded, should always have a backup plan. Okay, so, so everybody basically puts in a pledge or they even fund it at a certain point. Um, but if that can't happen for whatever reason, what is the backup plan and plan for that? You know, cause if we had planned for what the, the backup is, and you know, is, is, uh, you know, the, the path we're actually taking, it's, it's going to work out fine, but it was just, you know, I, I think the biggest part of it was a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, resentment over the fact that, man, it's, this was supposed to go one way and it, and it's kind of not going that way. And yeah, this will work, but it's not ideal. So it's going to work, but it certainly would have been better if we sat down and said, okay, if that doesn't work, what our plan is, what's our plan B and maybe even plan C and how's that going to look? 
Uh, the other challenge that I would say is is extremely high right now, and you you'll probably agree with me on this, is the is finding contractors during COVID. It is unbelievable, and you would think it's because well everybody's nobody's working and they're all at home. That's not what I've found. What I have found is everyone's busy. Everyone has so much work. They're so booked out. It's been extremely hard, and because of the fact that we have so much value add going on right now, that is really pushing our schedules back significantly. So that part of it has also been a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Both good points on the first point. So is it just one investor that like you did a, a joint venture with on that yes. acquisition? Yep. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yep. Yeah. So that could be very tough when you, when you kind of run out of funds and, mm-hmm. you know, I've talked you know quite a bit about this is, you know, there's, there's not a lot, if you buy a park that's in a good market, there's not a lot that you could do to, you know, completely, you know, just, just go bring your income down to zero. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you're, if you're undercapitalized, it it really straps you with what you can do. And it's a tough place to be in. I know some operators that try to use the cash flow to implement and, and do CapEx. Well, you know, that's, it's just a little tight. It's just, it's, it's extremely tight it hurts your time frames. you know, because yep. you never know what's going to happen and when you're going to have a unit turnover. So that's, uh, that's interesting. Tell, yep. tell us, Paul, what, uh, what do you think about the current state of the manufactured housing industry and, you know, where do you see it going into the foreseeable future with COVID and all? Well, I think that the state of the manufactured housing, you know, it's it's similar to other types of housing. Uh, there there are some hiccups with collections, things like that. I, I would have to say from my personal experience and folks I've spoken to and things I've read, it's not quite as bad uh, as the multifamily, um, you know, but it's it's a bit challenging right now. And it seems to me that this second round of COVID has actually affected us more so than the first round. We we had some tenants come to us and typically we don't really get into payment plans or anything like that, but this was such a unique situation that we started working with a few tenants and and it worked out okay, um, you know, where we we allowed them to pay uh, and, and, you know, they had to have something in writing and basically said, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pay extra every couple of weeks or whatever it was. And so that worked out okay. We didn't have quite we didn't have quite as much as, as we were expecting because we didn't know what to think when all this started. Uh, but the second round, it seems like more people have lost their income. And the other thing, it seems that finding replacement income, whether it be from the government or from another job, has become more of a challenge. So so our our delinquency from the first wave of COVID was actually fairly low. Um, and our delinquency on the second round is actually increased from that point. So we're still doing okay. You know, it it could always be better. We'd like it to be better. And we're actually making some changes to make it better. But um, giving us the ability to, you know, where we would typically say, well, state you're in, if you don't pay, we're just going to go ahead and file an eviction. That whole process, we've had to rethink it dramatically because, um, you know, it just, it, in this environment, it seems that these folks, first of all, from the human aspect, they have nowhere else to go. Um, if they've lost their job and they're, they're kind of at their final place anyway, and they can't find anywhere cheaper. Um, but I do believe that the, you know, moving forward, the industry itself, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very bullish on it. 
because of a lot of different factors. Obviously, one of the big ones is consolidation. You know, that's happening dramatically. I'm sure you see it with searching for properties. It's nowhere near as easy to find them when you do. The prices have, have gone up dramatically, but I still do think there's enough value left, uh, whether it be in value add on the property level from rent raises, because I think that the, the raises are, are, are or the rents are, are way too low in many properties. And as consolidation continues and some of these bigger players come in and they correct those numbers, it allows the smaller guys to correct those numbers as well um, without pricing ourselves out of the market. You know, I don't want to be the first one to go from, you know, 250 to 375 or $450, but I'd certainly, um, you know, we'll ride the coattails of three or four other, you know, properties that are, are raising their rents. So I definitely see a lot of value in the future. Uh, I think that we have to rethink what are what we're willing to purchase up front. So for instance, uh, a lot of people aren't willing to purchase value. Um, in my opinion, I'm willing to purchase value, but it just depends on what it is. It's based on risk and work. If, if I have to put up all the risk and I have to put up all the work, I'm not really willing to pay for that value up front. But if there's little risk and little work, such as rent raises, I'm willing to pay some of that value. So I think a lot of investors who look at purchase cap um, are going to have a very difficult time moving forward. But those who can look past it and who can truthfully build a pro forma that is reliable and achievable um, and not from a broker who's trying to sell you the property, uh, they'll probably do pretty well. Uh, because I believe that the asset class, as the big players run out of 200 space properties to purchase, they're going to come knocking on the doors of the 100 space properties. And if you can get good with the value add, uh, they're really not in that game yet. I think there are a couple big players who are, are, are dipping into that game. But for the most part, they're looking for turnkey properties. And there are so many out there that could be there, but just aren't. And so I think that's where the mobile home park investors who are going to do really well going into the future are the ones that can truly evaluate something and look at the value of it and be able to uh, reliably estimate or forecast what the property will do in you know three months, six months, 12 months, 24 months, and be willing to pay a little bit for that value up front. And also the ones who are, um, who are able to um, Take a property that is not running, I you know, at, at full capacity or, or at at the uh, optimal management, and be able to turn those properties around. I think that's really where where people are going to do well. But overall, the industry, um, it's just it seems to me like it's it's going to keep going up because it has gone up dramatically in the last five years since I started. Um, and when you look at the fundamentals of it, there's just still so much room. It certainly hasn't gotten to the top yet. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that point. Um, tell me, you know, what are some of the strengths and weaknesses of KP asset management on the, the actual property management side of things? So I think some of our strengths is, and, and, you know, this, this is always like the double-edged sword where some of the property management companies, um, as they grow, they, they become, uh, slow. Okay. So we're still small enough where we can execute speedily. Uh, where we can make decisions quickly, where we can, you know, we can take a project and if something changes, you know, we can basically pivot very easily. Larger companies have a very difficult time with that. So I think one of our strengths is, is in our small size. 
um, because of the fact that, you know, we can certainly uh, look at things, make quick decisions. We don't have to go through layers and layers of, of management. Uh, we also try to run as, as lean as possible. You know, if we, if we, if we have a, an individual working for us, uh, we, we make sure that that position is, is required. We make sure that that person is working as efficiently as possible. We try to give them the technology. We, we're always looking at new technology to try to, to, try to uh, increase efficiency. Uh, we train our employees as, as, as much as possible and continually to try and make certain that they are always up on anything new. And we're never afraid to try new things, uh, including things that are, you know, come from unlikely places. So we're always willing to listen to better ideas. If we have a system, a procedure in place and we get feedback, we're, we're always willing to look at it. You know, it may not work, but we can always go back. You know, Sam Walton was kind of the same way, you know, where where basically he was willing to try just about anything that was recommended to him uh, from anyone. And, uh, you know, we try to take that, try to take that, that uh, perspective on things and, and listen to everyone that's, that works for us. And we also try to listen to our tenants. What are they telling us? You know, we don't go out and decide that this property could use a playground and it's nothing but a bunch of 55 and older folks. We talk to the people and we try and find out what would bring value to them. One of the big pushes that we've got right now uh, is we've got uh, one of our managers looking at every property and basically trying to figure out what will bring value to the community. And when I mean value to the community, it means something that, of course, COVID notwithstanding, something that will bring the community together. Because we have communities where folks basically are isolated. Uh, they don't really talk to one another. They may have a friend or one or two in the park. Um, and then we have other parks where everyone seems to kind of hang out and, and everyone knows one another, they visit each other, and the properties run so much easier when there's that community aspect. So we're really looking at opportunities for vacant spaces or, or just vacant areas in the property to try to have a community building type um, objects or whatever it might be, whether it's uh, just a, a little covered area with some picnic tables or something that brings the community together. So they're all looking out for one another. They all know one another and uh, they're watching out for one another. And we're also trying to increase our communications with our tenants because typically it, the, we had that funnel from the on-site personnel to the upper management or the middle management. And now we're trying to open it up so that there's more communication between the mid-management and the tenants so that we can hear them and so they can feel heard and so that we can act more quickly and make them happier and make them stickier in reality is what it does. Yeah. Tenant longevity. That's uh, it's a big that's one. Most important, right? <laughs> yeah. So tell us, Paul, what does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes? Oh, wow. Perfect mobile home park. I would say the perfect mobile home park is in a metro of at least a million million plus. Um, I would say uh, at purchase, it it has depressed rents that are, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of $75 or $100 low. Uh, maybe it doesn't have the uh, utilities, the, the water and sewer build back. Um, and, you know, it's it's got good occupancy and lots of tenants that have been there a long time. Most of them own their own homes and, and have them paid for outright. Um, and the surrounding area has very high home prices. And I'd say that park has at least 125, 150 spaces. So at purchase, that would be the perfect property. Um, 
On the other side, from operations, say something we've owned a while, the perfect park is one that's obviously completely full. Uh, most, if not all, the tenants own their own homes, whether it be through uh, some maybe some debt on the home or they've got them paid off. And again, going back to that community aspect, uh, if I've not been to that park or folks don't know me there and I pull up and I step out and I walk up to say a, a, a home or something like that or go look at something, immediately someone's on me. What do you, who are you? What are you doing here? Um, I've, I've had that happen and I've explained to the people who I am. And immediately they want to apologize. And I tell them, please don't apologize. This is what we want. You know, you're watching out for your neighbors. I pull in here. You want to know who I am, what I'm doing here, because you've never seen me here before. That's fantastic. You know, that's great. Um, so I think that a property that has good tenants that are obeying the rules, they're in their forever home. So they're not going anywhere. Uh, they don't plan on moving anytime soon. They own their home. Um, you know, those are ideal. And either either it's a larger park or it's very close to another larger park. Yeah, that sounds like a, a heck of a park to me. Um, I wanted to ask you about the manufactured home loans. I know you've done some of those with like PEP lending or, or I know you had another company mm -hmm. that you've used or, or a credit union. Mm -hmm. Maybe could you share a little bit about yep. your experience with them and kind of what that looks like? Sure. Yeah, I think that if people are are looking at uh, putting third party debt on properties, um, they they really want to look into all the options out there. Uh, you know, pretty much everyone knows about Twenty uh, First Mortgage, and they have a good product. But I will say regarding Twenty First Mortgage is that uh, they have a good product depending on what area you're in. All right, so the tenant base it, it may not work. Uh, for 21st. So there are other options out there. We've had a lot of great success with uh, Oxford and, um, you know, some, some other lenders uh, like, you know, principal equity partners. Um, they're all slightly different. The, the number of chattel lenders in the business has grown substantially. There are so many more today than there were when I first started. Um, but they're not all apples to apples comparisons. So you really have to contact as many as possible and find out what the differences are. Um, as far as I know, I believe Triad is actually working on coming out with a non-recourse product. So I'm really excited about that. And uh, I'm gonna keep in touch with them to see what that's about. But for the most part, they're all recourse at this point and they're recourse in different ways. So for instance, um, you are underwriting the payments with 21st Mortgage whereas you're underwriting the balance with principal equity partners. So that's a big difference that you just, you know, not saying one's better than the other, but it really has to be thought through. So um, if you have to pay off the home, depending on how much it is, you have to be prepared to do that. Um, and also going back to what I was mentioning regarding 21st, it's not that they don't have a good product, but it can be a little bit tougher for some tenants to be able to, um, get approved through 21st. So looking at other companies that look at tenants differently, that don't put credit as high on the list of, um, of qualifying, you know, attributes, that's important as well. Uh, you know, so like for instance, uh, principal equity partners, they, they look at job history and payment history. They really don't care about you know, for the most part, they really don't care about, about your credit history. And for the most part, most people that have family parks, um, 
these folks are not coming in with great credit. In fact, we'd have, we've had to rethink some of our, some of our uh, procedures as far as credit goes, because, you know, if you're, if you're trying to find a tenant and someone comes in and their credit is 480 and you've got it cut off at 500, you may be missing out on a really great tenant. Uh, but you really have to look close. If that tenant is, you know, you know, why do they have such poor credit? Working with lenders that are willing to do that, like Oxford and Principal Equity Partners, is really important if you're in an area where there's a lot of that. Uh, 21st is great because they typically will pay for uh, more than will some of the others. They, they pay for setup, for instance, and where Legacy won't pay for the setup, they'll pay for the, the invoice and the HVAC. But, uh, you know, so there's, there's just so many different products out there. I think the most important thing is to learn as much as possible about at least a half a dozen of them that are available in your area and then make more than one available to your tenants. So for instance, we, we, it, ideally we have three available on each property because then uh, if, if we like 21st the most, if the, if the, if the prospect uh, you know, is approved, great. If they don't, we want to have a fallback plan. And in reality, if we're trying to push something, you have to be very careful with uh, some of the laws that are out there where you don't want it to seem like you're steering them to a particular lender anyway. So it's a good idea from a liability aspect to have more than one lender available. Um, many people will underwrite these, uh, these things themselves through either investment pools, which is fine or on their books with their property. Uh, we do that when we have to, but typically I try to look at that as a stepping stone. So for instance, for instance, if someone comes out and is looking to purchase a home and they apply and their credit doesn't quite meet the standards of the lender, and maybe they don't have quite as big of a down payment as the lender would like, we might give them a short-term option to where they will lease the home from us for a limited time and then they will have to purchase the property at the end of that term. And in the, in the interim, what we'll do is we'll help them build. The, the property management software that we use will actually report to the big three in order to assist tenants in uh, building their credit. So if we can get them in one, two, or three years at the most to a point where that lender can give them that loan, that's ideal. But just understanding too, that even if you have all these products, you may have to carry folks for a little while, depending on the scenario. Yeah, no, I like that option where you, you say, hey, here's three lenders you can go to, you know, pick, you know, apply with all of them, right? Yep. You know, it would, might help them out quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, okay, in regards to pro formas, you know, what have been some of your pro forma mistakes and then also what have been some pro formas, uh, you know, items that you've been, you know, right on, right on with. So I'd say the biggest mistakes with pro forma, and it's probably going to be the same with uh, a lot of people is schedule. i tell you, it's, uh, it's very difficult. My, my background is construction management. So I come from that industry. I did that for over 20 years. And uh, I can tell you, it's, it's very seldom that you, that you get on a job that comes in under budget and ahead of schedule. It happens occasionally, but most jobs uh, go beyond schedule. And so when we're doing a value add, the schedule uh, has been some of the biggest oversights 
when trying to figure out how long is it going to take to do this or that. Uh, another thing is um, when you're looking at your um, building your pro forma, for instance, sometimes you you if the schedule is going to be farther out, you have to take certain things into account where um, if you know we've had certain vendors, for instance, where uh, we, we had all these quotes up front, we built this pro forma, and then something happened to where their say their material costs increased dramatically, like with with COVID. So you're you, you've got good numbers, but let's say your bids are only good for 30 or 60 days and you're coming back 90, 120 days later, and all of a sudden their you know asphalt has gone up 30% or or wood has gone up 60%. Uh, those are some some misses. Can you fix those ones? Uh, it's it's you you pretty much you can't, you know, because you'd need a crystal ball to be able to fix that. But uh, being a little more conservative on schedule is something that I've learned to do, and also on cost to where if I'm getting if I'm getting bids, we certainly don't pick the lowest bids and throw those in the pro forma. Pro forma that that's that's a big mistake because you know if you go through the process of vetting a contractor um, that's the lowest and they're a great contractor, fine. But many times what you'll find is that that lowest price contractor really doesn't have everything in the bid. And you probably didn't build that out, you know, or spend the time to vet all that out when you were building the pro forma. Um, some of the pro forma items that have, that have uh, you know, we've kind of hit or exceeded. Um, I think that for the most part, I, I try to be a little conservative on rent raises. And here it seems in the last couple of years, uh, I've undershot that quite a bit, which is obviously a good thing. Uh, because of the fact that, you know, it was hard three or four years ago to see how quickly the uh, consolidation has driven rents upward. So that's a good thing. But, you know, um, today I, I wouldn't count on it necessarily. I'd still be conservative on those fronts. But if if you're putting together something that is um, that is uh, a lot of value at a lot of construction work, Make sure you're conservative on those on those time estimates, and and make sure you're not just taking the the lowest bidder. Uh, not necessarily that you have to vet the the contractors out, but maybe take the second highest or even the highest, depending on what it is. And I've always uh, I've always added at least fifteen percent to every budget just for discovery because discovery will kill you. You know, you you go in to replace a, a section of pipe, and you have to keep chasing it, and, and you know it. You always have to have some some extra fluff in there. Um, another thing is that uh, you know, basically, if you're if you're moving a lot of homes in, um, you want to be very that. careful. I was, was going to ask yeah. you. Tell us about infill. Do you do you manage yeah. that yourself? Do you have yes. a team that manages that? Yeah, I manage uh, that. How many I homes manage a that year myself. Um, so let's see. This year. Uh, here in the next few months, we'll probably have two dozen homes coming in. I would say this year we'll probably have 50 homes moved in, maybe 60 tops. But, uh, you know, when it comes to moving homes in, one of the things that uh, early, early on I, I looked at was, okay, if we bring in six homes, uh, we'll be able to sell these off and, and then, you know, utilize that money to, to to start bringing in six more homes. That's a little dangerous because of the fact that, you know, as I was telling you before, if if you get a bunch of prospects and they come in and they're all good with the 21st century or Oxford or something like that, you get all your cash back. That works beautifully. No problem. Uh, 
the problem comes in when these tenants cannot get that financing and you have to, you know, have a, uh, you know, a lease option. Well, now where's all that cash? Well, it's tied up until you get that third party debt converted. So you have to be real careful with that. So I would always rather go to my investors and say that we want to, you know, basically fund most, if not all these homes right up front. Now, if we don't need that money because of the fact that we're able to churn, that's great. But don't count on that churn until you really, really understand that market. Maybe until you sold a dozen homes in that market and you can see and you're sure that you can get that third party debt to allow that churn. Because if you can't get that third party debt, your only other option basically is to carry them until such time when you can get the third party debt. So don't count on that churn too much. Yeah. And it just can, you know, lengthen your time of the turnaround, you know, if you have right. to sit around and wait. So yep. awesome, man. Well, well, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, how can listeners get a hold of you if they would like to do so? Well, they can, uh, they can visit our website and that's uh, kpassets.com. It's plural. K is in Kelly, P is in Paul and the word assets, A-S-S-E-T-S. And then uh, my email is paul at kpassets. And, uh, you know, they can, uh, they can get a hold of me that way. Uh, or the company number is 219-595-2655. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Paul. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. All right, folks, that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Would you like to see Mobile Home Park value add projects in progress? If so, follow us on Instagram at Passive MHP Investing for photos and awesome videos from our recent mobile home park acquisitions. Once again, that's at Passive MHP Investing on Instagram. See you there.